welcome to the stories of Northern Life from the Sault Ste. Marie Museum. Today we are talking about firsts, setting the course of the future of Sault Ste. Marie. Though these firsts may not be revolutionary, they set the scene for many years of growth and expansion to come in the Sioux. I will be reading articles from the published book, Our Town, Sault Ste. Marie, Canada, by Aileen Collins, both volumes one and two. The articles appeared in the Sioux Daily Star as a weekly column over a period of five years, entitled Our Town, of course. So without further ado, let's get into it. First store here. In correspondence from John O. Plummer, Toronto, interesting glances are shed on the life history and business sense of the Sioux's first and foremost businessman, the late W.H. Plummer, John O.'s uncle. It also gives a little bit of the history of the maternal side of the family, the Fanshaws. The Fanshaws were residents of Sault Ste. Marie when Fanny Fanshaws married the Palmer family. There were Irish from County Westmouth. Mr. Plummer writes, their home, Cherick, in Mullingar, had been in the family since the days of Cornwall. Grandfather graduated from Trinity College, Dublin, also my alma mater, in 1845. I went to TCD with a British government rehabilitation grant after having served with, with an Irish regiment, the Royal Inniskilling Facilers, in the First World War. One of my mother's ancestors fought with the same regiment at the Battle of Boyne in 1690. An alumni Dublinist, a volume listing Trinity College, Dublin, graduates from 1637 to 1846, in which appeared numerous fanshaws. I've also found the names of five plumbers, the earliest of whom is John. He got his BA in 1667 and MA in 1670. All five came from County Limerick, but whether or not they were related to our branch of the family, the Algoma Plumbers, I cannot say. W.H. Plummer, who was born in England, started to work for a living when he was 14. His first job was in the Marx Brothers store at Bruce Mines. Having a key eye for business, he took to the rugged pioneer ways of the North County. From the start, by degrees, the life of the Sioux centered around him. When he moved to the Sioux in 1870 and set himself up in a merchandising business in partnership with the Marks, he had already gained a wide reputation for sound business dealing and a readiness to help the other fellows, a reputation he never lost. Later, when Tom Marks, who was Aunt Maria's uncle, moved on to Prince Arthur's Landing, the name, early name for Port Arthur. Uncle Will carried on the business under the name Plumber and Co. The bulk of his early business was, was got by trading. At the back of his store, he had built a warehouse where the Indians and trappers brought their furs to exchange for food supplies and other goods stored there. 
Uncle Will and his wife, Maria, married in 1876, lived in a large house on the south side of Queen Street towards the eastern end of the town. The house was called Lynhurst. In the days when W.H. Plummer lived at Lynhurst and during the heyday of its owner's prominence, it was the hub of social life in the Sioux, and no one of any importance who ever visited the town failed to be entertained there. First train in 1887. In 1887, the first locomotive, a wood burner, puffed into the village of Sault Ste. Marie, marking a forward movement in the history of the Sioux. Number 210 whistled a warning of arrival at about 9 a.m. on October 20th of that year. It came to a stop where the present station now stands. Records tell that it was a bright but cold day and the ground was covered with a light fall of snow. School children were given a holiday for the momentous occasion, and the prominent men of the village, W.H. Plummer, John Dawson, John Collins, and others spoke of the great advantages of the rail connection for the Sioux. D.J. Elliott was the engineer on number 210. W.M. Davy and James Brady were firemen. The name of the conductor seems not to be recorded or it was lost amongst other records. An old building east of Pym Street and parallel with the track directly behind the old residence of late Lou Shetman was used as the first station. A Mr. Goodwin was the station master then. W.H. Evanston was the first station master after the present station was built. A boom struck the Sioux in 1887 after the railway was built and the real estate was sky high. In 1885, the CPR telegraph was open in the Pacific Hotel on Pimp Street with a J.J. Crowell in charge. The line followed the northern road of town to the highway through the Algoma Mills, where any obstruction occurred on the line Philip Gagnon, remembered yet by many Suites, occasionally walked through the Algoma Mills on foot with his tool pack on his back to remedy the trouble. Mr. Crowell died in 1888, and W.R. Cunningham was appointed agent. A new office was built at 11 Queen Street near Plummer's store to house the Telegraph and Dominion Express business. The Bell Telephone Co. opened up an exchange in 1888 or 1889 in what was the Hunter's Drug Store on Pym Street. Gus Bouchard, clerk, looked after calls for 25 or 30 subscribers. An electric light system was installed around 1888. The power plant was in the old Hudson's Bay Fort building at the west end of Queen Street. Riverboats. The cessation 
of ferry service between the two Sioux since the opening of the bridge after 80 odd years of ferries plying back and forth is still a major loss to many diehards. The news last week that there might not even been bus service across the structure didn't soothe the disturbed ones either. Heard on every side were stories of the number of passenger boats that used to be in the river years and years ago. And now, mainly due to progress, there are only three or four. It is true too. Years ago, service between the Canadian and Michigan sides of the river was carried on with Mackinac boats, and there are many of them. Regular trips across the river were made throughout the day and the boats were available for special trips at night. Other Mackinac boats owned by many villagers could also be obtained. These did not run regularly, but only when requested. At that time, it was the custom of the Sioux residents to meet the various passenger steamers calling at the canal Canadian Dock, at which time they would often meet friends and get news from the outside sources before the arrival of the newspapers. One exciting arrival was that one of the steamers, Campana, when she sailed up the river, she was the first ocean-going steamer ever to arrive to Sault Ste. Marie. There was not enough water at the dock on the Canadian side, and so she had to tie up on the Michigan Sioux dock. The Campana was something new in a steamboat sailing the Great Lakes at that time. She was a twin screw steamer, 240 feet in length with a gross tonnage of 1,697 tons. She had been built for ocean trade and at the time was unquestionably the queen of all ships sailing the upper lakes. She piled between Collingwood and Duluth, calling at Owen Sound, Sault Ste. Marie, Port Arthur, and Fort William. On the day of her arrival, everyone on the Canadian side crossed on the ferries to the Michigan side to see this new marvel. There were many who shook their heads and expressed great doubts about the cohesion of their iron construction. If she should strike one of the many hidden rocks on the waters over which she had to sail, but all went well. There were many boats to meet in those days. The Lake Superior Transportation Company operated a line of steamers from Buffalo to Duluth that called at the various ports, including Sault Ste. Marie. The fleet was composed of well-equipped and appointed steamers among which were the Japan, China, Nyack, Winslow, and several other. Canadians wishing to reach outside ports often traveled on them. To board them, they had to cross to the Michigan side. The amount of traffic going through the ship canal was very noticeable as one came into the St. Mary's River from Lake Huron or Georgian Bay, where they converged on their way to the canal. There are a great many purely freight freight boats, as well as the passengers, and the usual sight was a freight barrage towing sometimes as many as three or four schooners. 
first Sioux Ferry. What about the dime? Tell us more about the dime. Queries have resulted from last week's Our Town column. The dime was the first steam ferry which ran between the two Sioux. It was a small boat about 30 feet long with a glassed-in cabin and it accommodated five or six passengers. The Beckwith, the first charited ferry which came later, had to comply with the rules of its charter commencing to run at 7 a.m. and stopping at 9 p.m., except during the fall season which commended November 1st. From that date until freezing time, it was to start at 8 a.m. and stop at 8 p.m. Not so with the dime. Edmund Parr, who owned the boat, was the captain, engineer, and crew. He was also the proprietor of the West End House, the first hotel in our town, of which any record can be found. It was located next to the old Turner Block, where Brock Street is now. The dime had no regular trips. When anybody wanted to go across the river, he simply called upon Mr. Parr and let him know. Captain Parr would then walk over from Brock Street to the foot of Spring Street, where he kept his boat, get up steam, and ferry his passengers across. Sometimes he would have a return fare, but not often. The dime's engine was fired with wood, and the flare was a dime. It was all a very obliging sort of arrangement. No one knows what became of either the boat or the hotel. There were other ferries in the early days. Rowboats, canoers, and sailboats acted as such, and all were kept moderately busy. Peter Byron has a very large sailboat, which he used as a ferry and handled a large number of passengers. Another well-known ferryman was Frank Tiblow, who had an equally large rowboat and was kept very busy. During the days of the Beckwith, these small ferries came into their own after the chartered ferry was tied up for the night. The Michigan Sioux was much larger than the Canadian Sioux at the time, and there was more nightlife over there than as how people from one side of the river had to celebrate with those of the opposite side. In the wintertime, the river usually was frozen solid all the way across. The ice was tested for depth, and when considered safe, a road was made across with a sort of fence arrangement of evergreens planted in the snow on either side to mark it. People could walk across or drive across in their sleighs of their own or rented ones. In the real early days, exciting horse races were held on the river when the ice was good. Some winters, the river would not freeze all the way over, and a narrow strip of water in the center of the river would remain open. When this happened, a small ferry was again called into action. It would pick up the passenger who had reached the open water and ferry them over to the solid ice on its other side. Sometimes this distance was only two or three boat lengths. Other times it might be more, but no matter what the distance, it was a cold business for the ferryman. The fare, a dime. That was a good one. 
first tennis courts. A copy of the Sioux Star, which published an interview with Christopher Plummer, was sent to the actor's father, John O. Plummer, Toronto, and it brought back the most interesting reply. Mr. Plummer writes that the article reminds me of my early days in the Sioux when, as a boy, I stayed with my Uncle Will and Aunt Maria, Mr. and Mrs. W.H. Plummer, in their home, Lyndhurst, now the nurse's residence of the Plummer Memorial Hospital. I recall, among other things, a cupboard full of tennis rackets, the old fish-handled sword, and being asked to choose one for myself. This was my first introduction to lawn tennis. I had my very first lesson on the grass of Lyndhurst from Uncle Alf, A.E. Plummer, who was a crack player in his day. He won the Canadian All-Comers Singles Championship in 1888, six years before I was born. I remember he used to disport himself on the court with great gusto before the ladies who oohed and awed in rapt admiration as he dazzled them with his good looks, easy style, and amazing assortment of strokes. I recall, too, the plumber store on Pimp Street, where my father worked for several years after quitting school in Toronto. My father left the Sioux after his marriage to my mother, Fanny Fanshawe, whom he first met in the Sioux, where she was living with her father and brother Ed after her mother's death. Ed Fanshawe was the accountant of the Bank of Commerce at the Sioux at that time. Grandfather Francis Fanshawe died there in 1892, the year my parents were married. Grandfather William Plummer was sent to Bruce Mines in 1859 to take charge of the West Canadian Mining Company then operated by his employer, John Taylor and Sons, mining engineers of London, England. His younger brother, Ben, also was a mining engineer employed by the same firm, gaining quite a considerable reputation for his ability and sound judgment in the connection of his work or mines in India. Yet although they originally came from Cornwall, which is one of the oldest and best-known mining districts in the world, the plumbers were better known in those parts as merchants and businessmen. Anthony Plummer of Kentwin, born during the later part of the 17th century, established a cloth manufacturing business there, which was carried on successfully by both his sons and grandson. The later also named Anthony a leading citizen of Turo, which said to be the largest employer of labor in the district. He had four or five factories, including a spining jenny, a spining jenny paper mill, a carpet and blanket factory, in operation simultaneously. I dare say it was from these forebears that W.H. Plummer and his brothers inherited the aptitudes as businessmen rather than professional men. For my part, I was trained for the bar, the Irish bar, graduating from Trinity College, Dublin. But owing, but owing to the troubled state of Ireland during the time I was a student and after, 
circumstances did not make it feasible for me to practice the profession. Instead of which, I decided to return to Canada. First, news media. Daily newspapers were almost unknown to the forefathers, and weeklies even were few and far between, seldom if ever reaching the hands of those who lived in remote places. In consequence, thereof, reading material was scarce outside the larger towns and colonies. And when the yearly almanac, which in some mysterious ways was sure to reach even the reachmost places, arrived, it was greeted with joy. Fortunately for our forefathers, those early almanacs were not without some claim to literary merits. They were filled with prestigious prognostications as to weather and had snatches of wisdom, humor, verse, and essay. The signs of the zodiac and, of course, your horoscopes were included beside a few recipes. Salve, pill, or potion, that was exactly the answer to any ache or pain the reader might have, the reader might fall here to, was prescribed. The almanac was in fact a compedium of useful knowledge as well as being eagerly awaited as it was hauled as a most important event of any home. Usually stuck on a nail in the corner, its quaint sayings were read over and over by every member of the family. Numerous almanacs were published during a colonial days in this country. The population of poor man's almanac edited by Benjamin Franklin, went hand in hand with that of its illustrious maker. The first Amon's Almanac, published in 1726, was conventional in form and followed other almanacs of that period. Its maker was a physician, Amos Almanac. Amos Almanacs contained a table of moments from the planets and sundry prophecies concerning the weather. We read that examination of the files of Amos Almanacs shows that nearly every conceivable subject was discussed by the doctor in its 40 years of publications. Perhaps the most interesting portions of all these almanacs were the bits of wisdom and humor that went with each calendar month. A few examples of these are February 1738, Pretty cold, freezing nights followed with a short storm. Let travelers be upon their guard to protect their noses. February 1747. The farmer now resolved he will not freeze when he has pipes, tobacco, fire, and good bread, talk, and cheese. October 17, 1763. Those that are husbands good, that are husbands good, should now get their, their cider, grain, and wood. An honest friend is good company, but a good conscience is the best guest. First City Lodge. In the year 1885, 
The idea of forming a Masonic Lodge on the Canadian bank of the St. Mary's River was born. The idea was conceived by a few of the brethren then residing on the little hamlet of Sault Ste. Marie, nestling with the roar of the sparkling rapids at the foot of the great inland sea known as Lake Superior. These few members, so far removed from mother lodges, longing for their accustomed Masonic functions and realized this longing could be gratified by the formation of a new lodge. A petition was therefore presented to the Grand Lodge at its regular convention in 1885. It was considered favorably and a dispension was granted and issued. The new lodge was to be known as Keystone Number 412, GRC. It was opened thereunder on July 21st, 1885 by R.W. King. DDGM, Georgian District, and Reverend N.A. McDarmond. W.H. Carney, the Venerable Sheriff of Lagoma at the time, was the Senior Warden, and E. Bingings, the Northern Pioneer Journalist, was the first Junior Warren and Secretary Pro Tem. The meeting was held in a room over the Northern Pioneer office on Pimp Street. On the 24th of July, a second meeting was held with 28 members present, several of whom were from the Michigan side. G. Crowell was raised to the degree of a Master Mason, the first time a third degree was conferred by Keystone Lodge. The first Masonic dinner given by it was on December 27, 1886, St. John's Day at a total cost of $15. On January 20th, 1887, the members attended the funeral of their brother, Captain J. Spartling of Michigan Sioux Lodge. The conveyance having been provided to take the brethren across to the river on the ice. It was the first Masonic funeral Keystone attended. By 1890, it became apparent that the Pym Street Hall was inacquainted and not abreast of the time. More commodious quarters was considered, and the result was leasing of the hall the Turner Block on Queen Street. The lodge continued to grow, and on February 25, 1820, a proposition to build an even more suitable hall and premises of the Harris Block then under construction at Queen and Spring Streets, was accepted. Everything was completed that year, and the lodge moved to its fine new location on October 20th, 1902. After this, several ideas were introduced in connection with the lodge among them, a past master's night, which had become an annual affair. An annual reception was also introduced and so marked was its success that it too became a permanent feature of the lodge. Those are all the articles I'm going to read for you today. So I hope with that that you learned a little something new about Sault Ste. Marie and the lives of people who lived here. I hope you walk away from this with the knowledge that every first counts and it is important to make a lot of them. Remember your last first in your life. 
even something small like the first time trying a new food or first time taking a course or trying some new hobby, first time walking down a particular street or changing your route to work, I encourage you to have a new first today. Do something new, maybe start a new path to grow and explore. Ciao for now, and I'll talk to you again next week.